There's a question that I've been thinking a lot about lately, and that is, what would alien life look like? I know, that's kind of a hard question to ask, isn't it? Well, we're going to answer that, or we're going to at least speculate on what alien life might look like in today's podcast. Yeah, I know, I've been gone for a while. I've been doing a lot of work. I've been building an office, and uh, it's going to be a nice one, so I won't be crammed into a small room anymore. So, you will see some more podcasts coming from me here in the future. But today, on Tom SciCast, we're going to talk about what would alien life look like as we continue to explore our universe around us. I know. And interestingly, you know, I'm teaching a class in astrobiology, and some of my colleagues like to give me a hard time, like, hey, wait a second, how can you teach a class in astrobiology when we've never found life outside of the Earth? And I'm like, well, it's still science, right? I mean, we form testable hypotheses, you know, that are potentially falsifiable. And we're currently looking for life on Mars, or at least signs of life on Mars. So it is science, you know, because science begins with curiosity, you know, a curious mind. And, you know, if you're like me, I look out up in the night sky and I just see thousands of stars. And that's just in our little local area. We live in a galaxy with maybe upwards of a trillion stars. We live in a universe with trillions of galaxies, each one with hundreds of billions of stars. So there's a lot of potential for biology out there. Unfortunately and sadly, I probably won't ever get to see any of it except maybe, just maybe, right here in our solar system. But that brings me back to this question. You know, if we are looking for life, Well, we have to know what we're looking for. So in one of my earlier podcasts on exploring the universe, I asked a question, well, what is life? And we came to this idea of what does life do? And we know that life is basically taking in energy from the environment. Life is this open system that uses energy to basically kind of create order at the level of the organism. Now, We're not like violating any laws of thermodynamics or anything like that because outside of the system, which is our organism, we're actually increasing entropy. And another definition of life is from NASA. And that is, it's a self-sustaining chemical reaction capable of Darwinian evolution. Now that tells you a lot, right? There are these these chemical reactions going on and uh, they're probably directed by some form of information stored in a molecule And uh, that information, there's a continuous lineage of that information. And because every time you copy information, you usually have some errors. And those errors allow for natural selection to act upon and you get evolution. So my next question is, if we kind of know what we're looking for and where we might find it, well, what might it look like? So what would alien life look like? And actually, yes, This is science because I can formulate testable hypotheses based on what we know. I know it's a sample of one, right? We have the earth. That's just a a sample of one. But we have something to look at. We have some way of making a prediction here. So here today, I'm going to throw out my ideas of what life might look like. All right, let's get started. You know, at its most basic level, If we look at like origins of life, there's probably going to be some water, some carbon, and uh, those are the ingredients of life. Of course, you need nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, sulfur, 
and some electrolytes, you know, like calcium, potassium, sodium, chloride. And that's what life on Earth looks like, right? Or those are the ingredients of life on Earth. And of course, energy. And that's huge. So life is going to somehow use energy. And I'm going to also assume that life will be carbon-based. And the reason why I think carbon-based life is going to be the most likely scenario is because carbon can form covalent bonds with other carbon atoms, oxygen atoms, nitrogen atoms, and hydrogen atoms, and those bonds are relatively stable. And you can add lots of carbon together, and you can create large, complex organic molecules. And those carbon, carbon bonds, right, those covalent bonds holding those carbon atoms together with some hydrogen and nitrogen and oxygen, they're strong, but not too strong, right? I mean, it's like the Goldilocks zone, right? Wait, or don't we hear about the Goldilocks zone a lot in astrobiology? Yeah, well, at the chemical level, it's at the Goldilocks zone because these chemical bonds are strong, but not too strong. You can actually break them with enzymes and a little bit of input of energy. Okay, so life, likely gonna be carbon-based. That would be the most plausible scenario. I know, you're probably thinking silicon-based life, but the reality with silicon-based life is in silicon, you have this extra electron shell. So you've got the inner shell, then you've got a second shell, then you have a third shell further away from the nucleus, and as a result, those electrons, they have a lot more energy. So if you start forming these silicon, silicon, silicon bonds, right? Just keep adding silicon to each other. Those bonds are actually pretty unstable. They break really easily, too easily to be stable for a life. And they almost instantly react with something like oxygen and you get silicon dioxide. Okay, so water and carbon-based life. Now, there might be life in liquid hydrocarbons like methane, ethane, or even propane, like what we see on Titan. Well, I've never seen that. We haven't discovered life on Titan. If we did, at least on the surface, that would be revolutionary for our chemistry. But even NASA has a mantra, follow the liquid water. And the reason why we're gonna have carbon-based life in liquid water is because water is a good solvent. So if you take some carbon and you add oxygen to it or nitrogen, then these molecules will dissolve in water along with your electrolytes. So water is this great solvent. It creates a medium for all of those chemical reactions of life to occur. And you know, another way of thinking about life is we're a, the emergent property of a complex system. And that complex system is a lot of chemical reactions and they're taking place in water. Okay, so what would alien life look like? Probably carbon-based, and it's going to be in water. And while well, the universe is huge, right? I just told you there's like probably a trillion stars in our galaxy and there's a trillion galaxies in the universe. So yeah, we might find life that is different from carbon and water. I'm not going to get into machine learning right here or machine life like V'ger from Star Trek The Motion Picture. We're going to stick with organic life here. So let's move on. Well, on our planet, Life emerged probably from these hydrothermal vents, most likely like a, an alkaline vent where you've got some hydrogen gas uh, mixing with carbon dioxide 
inside of these you know geological features there are little reaction chambers and they're 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 lined with like metal ions that help take the hydrogen they have a you know they're sharing a couple of electrons there holding those protons together and you basically you kind of coax it on to getting onto the carbon dioxide and by adding uh, these electrons to carbon dioxide you're effectively reducing it and adding a hydrogen you're taking an inorganic carbon and you're making it organic right so you know at the beginning of life this threshold of life we have to like build up organic molecules and the way you do that is you start adding hydrogens onto carbon and we're reducing them okay so yeah this is an autotrophic pathway autotroph remember that's our self-feeding organisms think like plants right they take carbon dioxide and water they use the energy and sunlight to split water and then they take the hydrogens and electrons from water, add it to carbon dioxide, and fix it into a carbohydrate. That would be an autotrophic pathway. So life is on, you know, let's say Mars or Venus of the past or on our moons of Jupiter or Saturn or even Uranus. <laughs> uh, I, every time I say that, I, I can't stop laughing. I'm sorry. My inner 13-year-old just boils up at that one. But let's get back. I, I digress a little bit. So we've got carbon chemistry basically in water, right? And for life to kind of get started, you need to have some form of autotrophic pathway. We've got to reduce carbon dioxide basically to organic molecules. And carbon dioxide is abundant in the universe, and so is hydrogen gas. So we're going to need some type of reaction that might start you know, adding hydrogen gas or hydrogen to carbons. Now on Earth, we know of four, maybe five pathways that can do that. Of course, the most popular one or the most common one that most of us know about, and I just mentioned it, is photosynthesis. And photosynthesis occurred very early on in life and it uses two abundant resources, or actually three, what sunlight, right? Water and carbon dioxide. And it basically fixes carbon dioxide into organic molecules. Now, when it comes to the origins of life on our planet, there is another autotrophic path, and that is the reverse Krebs cycle, or the reductive citric acid cycle. And you're probably going, oh no, oh no, not cellular respiration, not that Krebs cycle again. But if you look at all the life on this planet, you realize that the Krebs cycle, the oxidative Krebs cycle, which you're familiar with, which breaks down organic molecules, into carbon dioxide. And what it does is it extracts the energy from those organic molecules to, of course, power, uh, I'm going to say it, oxidative phosphorylation. Basically, it's the way we make ATP, the energy currency of life. In the Krebs cycle, you're, you're oxidizing these organic molecules and you're sticking them onto these uh, electron carriers called NADH and FADH2. And these are nicotinamide adenine adenine dinucleotide and flavin adenine dinucleotide let that sink in adenine adenine is a nucleic acid right nucleic acids form dna and rna like adenine thymine guanine cytosine and rna of course uses uracil whoa there's a there's a coupling there between a metabolic pathway and a nucleotide that's very interesting to me so at any rate you know, the Krebs cycle is breaking these things down. It's oxidative. 
just stripping the electrons off of them to be used, you know, in this oxidative phosphorylation to make ATP. Now, if you were to run the Krebs cycle backwards, add some energy and take carbon dioxide and hydrogen gas, you fix the carbon dioxide into organic molecules and eventually get like malate and citrate and things like that. Wow. Wow. And when you look at like every living organism on this planet, there's the citric acid cycle right at the heart of cellular metabolism, breaking things down, building things up. I know. So maybe, and there's good evidence of this, that the citric acid cycle may, or at least the reversed citric acid cycle may have been very important in the origins of life on this planet. So now let's say we go to Europa or Enceladus. Of course, Europa is a moon of Jupiter and Enceladus is a moon of Saturn. And they have these liquid oceans and, you know, they're liquid. There's some geological activity on there. We're pretty certain of it. And you could imagine life has to start somewhere and it has to start by, you know, adding hydrogens to carbons. So at the molecular level and at the cellular level, it would be really wild if like they use some form of a reverse Krebs cycle or even Krebs cycle inside of their cells. That would be crazy, isn't it? No, I said, of course, inside of cells. And I like the fact that cells are the basic unit of life because, you know, life is the system and systems are all these interacting components surrounded by a barrier. And our barrier for cells, are, of course, are membranes. So I kind of got a little bit ahead of myself here, but you could imagine you've got, you know, cells on Europa, down in the ocean or on Celadus or even on Mars. And would they look similar to us? Well, do they use proteins? Do they have nucleic acids storing their information? And my guess is probably. Amino acids are absolutely abundant in the universe. Uh, we find them everywhere. And in fact, when we've looked at like the meteors that have hit the earth, we've analyzed them and found like 90 plus amino acids. I know 90, right? Uh, that's a lot. We know they weren't made by life on earth because of the, the, handy, the handedness or the chirality of the molecules. On earth, all amino acids are made by living organisms and they're all left-handed. And when we look at the meteorites, we find equal amounts of left and right-handed, so they were made in space. Now, when it comes to information storage, you know, this connection between metabolism and our proteins and the storing of the information, you know, maybe they would use nucleotides like RNA and DNA. So I'm starting to build this case that I think at the cellular level, life might be really similar. Think about it. Carbon-based life and water, basic building blocks. You get things like amino acids. You get things like potentially amino acids making proteins. And as I pointed out, we would use the same similar building blocks. So life might look similar. Also, membranes. You need a membrane. You need some barrier. Well, on Earth, we use a phospholipid bilayer. And I could imagine that on another you know, body in water, that a phospholipid bilayer or maybe a unilayer would work very well as a membrane. And, you know, life on our planet, we use, if you're a bacteria or a eukaryote, our uh, hydrophobic little tail is part of our phospholipids. Phospholipid, uh, let me break that down. Phosphate means it has a, a phosphate head that like interacts with water. 
And the lipid is mostly hydrogen and carbon that are water-fearing. They're what we call hydrophobic. And these hydrophobic tails move away from the water, sticking the phosphate heads out. So on Earth, if you're a bacteria eukaryote, those little lipid tails are made up of fatty acids. They're just chains of carbon. And if you're an Archean, they're made up of isoprenoids, which is very similar, but they have extra methyl groups. Either way, that would form an effective barrier, a membrane, separating the interior of the cell from the outside world. So, wait, could life be really similar? Because you might share membranes made up of phospholipids. You are using amino acids as building blocks. You might use some form of nucleic acids to store the information that directs the activities of these cells. And because life had to emerge somehow and probably start off as autotrophic, I'm going to go even further to venture that the metabolism, the metabolic pathway to basically fix carbon dioxide might be similar. So now I'm going to make these predictions that I believe that life at the cellular level might be similar. You might have similar metabolic processes at the heart of those cells. And that might be some form of the citric acid cycle or even glycolysis. And in fact, when you look at life on our planet, there's like a hundred different, 135 different metabolic pathways shared by every living organism on this planet. Now, I would be absolutely shocked if we went to Europa and we discovered life and we shared almost a hundred metabolic pathways with them. That would be one of the most profound examples of convergent evolution that I could ever think of. But I don't think that's the case. It could be. But I do think that when it comes to making proteins, you know, we're going to use amino acids. Now, the question is, how similar would those amino acids be? Are they going to use ones similar to life on our planet? Or would they use a different set of amino acids? And on our planet, we have a genetic code based on the sequence of our nucleotides, adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. You take any three of those, like AAA, and that codes for a very specific amino acid. So the question is, you know, how similar would like a genetic code be? And even when you look at like uh, our genetic code, it's not random. There's actually some evolution behind those sequences, the genetic code, in terms of what types of amino acids it codes for. So, you know, I'm thinking my hypothesis would be that life at the molecular level would be somewhat similar. It's going to be carbon-based in water. You're going to have a membrane made up of some phospholipid bilayer, either uh, isoprenoid tails or fatty acid tails. You're probably going to have amino acids making proteins, nucleotides making DNA, and uh, you're probably going to share a few of the metabolic processes, especially when it comes to autotrophy, like a reverse Krebs cycle or the reductive citric acid cycle. It's the same thing, you know, adding hydrogens onto carbon dioxide with a little bit of energy. So I, I call myself a biological determinist here, right? And that idea of being a biological determinist is I look at how life got started on our planet and it works. It's based on 
molecules that are already around. And in fact, one thing that I kind of forgot to mention is that when you look at metabolic processes like the citric acid cycle, glycolysis, these very ancient, ancient pathways, and you realize they're at the heart of our cellular metabolism, not just breaking things down, but building things up because they produce molecules like pyruvate or acetaldehyde. And these molecules can be used as precursors to build things like carbohydrates, amino acids, fatty acids, and isoprenoids. So they're at the heart of both catabolic and anabolic reactions, the heart of all of the metabolism of our cells. And pyruvate and acetaldehyde and acetic acid, these things are abundant. So the reason why I'm a biological determinist is because you're gonna start with very similar building blocks. And why invent something completely different? So I think that this process of convergent evolution is gonna make life similar in most cases at the, cell at the cellular level. And the reason why is because you've got this problem, right? You've gotta add hydrogens to carbon dioxide and you gotta build up these molecules. You gotta have some form of autotrophic metabolism. And because we're using all of these same building blocks, you know, I think that life will, will converge on similar answers. Now, that being said, you know, there's always room for you know, things that go very, very different, especially when you start realizing there are, that there are literally, literally billions of Earth-like planets in our galaxy alone. In that case, you know, uh, something that's rare for life is bound to happen at some point. So I suspect that, you know, the majority of life in the universe through this process of convergent evolution is going to look similar. You got the same building blocks, similar starting conditions, and you've got similar problems and you're going to solve them in a similar way because it works. Now, don't get me wrong here. You know, I'm, I might be a biological determinist, right? But there's always room for something really wild to happen. I mean, the universe is just so big. It's so vast. There's so many possibilities out there that I'm sure that somewhere life solved the same problem doing something radically different. But my hypothesis that I'm going to throw out there is that at the cellular molecular level, life will be similar to what we see on Earth. Now, you know, a lot of us, um, what we're really concerned about is, you know, we watch Star Trek and Star Wars and all these other sci-fi shows like Babylon 5 and they're filled with aliens, alien life that's, you know, intelligent, advanced civilizations. Okay. Well, this gets more complicated. Now we're we're still going to throw out hypotheses that we can test, but we're going to add some speculation on top of speculation, a little creativity here. But hey, we're still throwing out testable hypotheses even though we are adding speculation on top of speculation. Well, our planet has at least one advanced civilization. I'm pretty sure that's all we've ever had. And there were a series of, of evolutionary innovations and changes to our planet and probably even to our own sun and our solar system that led to this ratcheting up of complexity of life on our planet. So what were those steps leading up to increasing complexity 
and how would that inform us of what life might look like? So, as I just said, at the microbial level, I imagine it's going to be fairly similar. What about more complex life? What about multicellular organisms with plant-like and animal-like organisms? Now, I don't want to call them animals on another planet because on our planet, animals are a monophyletic lineage, meaning mono, we came from a single common ancestor that lived about 600 million years ago, and all animals have evolved from that common ancestor. So if we were to go to another planet and find multicellular life, we wouldn't call it an animal, but it could be animal-like once again through convergent evolution. Okay, so let's let's take a step back here. What might life look like beyond just simple microbes like a prokaryotic cell? Well, if you're going to get into multicellular life, like plant-like and animal-like organisms, you know, life on this planet required a couple key changes. One of them was you had to have photosynthesis to produce oxygen. So specifically oxygenic photosynthesis, because oxygen, of course, is the byproduct of photosynthesis and oxygen energizes life. It, it allows life to become very efficient at extracting energy from organic molecules. Think aerobic respiration. And that's important because multicellular life is going to need a lot of energy. So you're going to need probably photosynthesis on the planet and you're going to need aerobic respiration. Now, on our planet, the simpler, structurally simple, prokaryotic cells never evolved multicellularity. They've evolved colonies, but not true multicellularity where you are made up of a bunch of clones. All your cells are clones, but there's differentiation of those cells into different tissues or organs that carry out different functions. So how do you how do you do that? Well, I just said that you need oxygen, you need energy, lots of energy, and you need a cell that can grow in complexity. So on our planet, shortly after oxygen reached a certain threshold, we got aerobic respiration and then we got eukaryogenesis. That's the origin of eukaryotic cells. And that was like the biggest restructuring of cells in like 2 billion years, right? Or one and a half billion years, but more like probably 2 billion years. These cells became larger and much more complex. And so far, it's these eukaryotic cells that are the only cells that form multicellular life. So what would life look like? Okay, I'm going to pause it here. Here's my hypothesis. If you have multicellular life, you're going to be on a planet that has a source of oxygen, and that could be from photosynthesis. Now, it could be from other sources as well. And like Europa might actually have oxygen being pumped into the ocean down there. That would be good for multicellular life. You need some form of aerobic respiration and complex cells capable of forming multicellularity. So energy, oxygen, very important. You can have oxygen, but you still need an energy source, right? You still need lots of energy for multicellular life. Just to rehash this, the, the ratcheting up of life is going to require most likely a good source of energy, like from sunlight, and you're going to need oxygen and some form of aerobic respiration. Now, as we move up in complexity, let's say you start getting your animal-like organisms. 
And yes, they're going to be breathing aerobically. They're going to need oxygen. That would be my guess. Now, of course, you're wondering, are are animal-like things going to look similar to animal-like things on our planet? Of course, I, I don't know the answer to that. But here's what I could say that if we were going to have a ratcheting up in complexity leading to you know advanced civilizations, I would make some pretty bold predictions here. I would say that their animal-like organisms have some form of movement and they have that movement coordinated by some type of nervous system. In fact, uh, the finding character of animals on this planet is that we have muscles that move and is coordinated by a nervous system that takes in stimulus from the environment. Now, the simplest animals like uh, your jellyfish, corals, sea anemones, and even starfish and uh, sea urchins, those are the echinoderms and then your, your, your sea anemones and corals are of course are called cnidarians. They have radial symmetry and they have simple nerve nets. Even those simple nerve nets can respond to the environment allowing that animal to move. But beyond that, all other animals are what we call a bilateral animal. Bilateral, I mean. What that means is we move through the environment in one direction. And because you move through the environment in one direction, you put all your sense organs where you get the environment first. That's your head. It's called cephalization. And because all of your senses are on your head, think antenna, eyes, ears, olfaction, you know, chemosensory, whatever, you put your, your brain, your ganglion mass there on your head because you want to receive that information, process it, and respond to it as quickly as possible. So, you know, what would alien life look like? I'm going to make another prediction probably bilateral symmetry, probably has some form of movement by muscles coordinated by a nervous system. You know what? Eyes evolved in animals like 40 different times. So if you're on a planet with sunlight, why not evolve eyes? Why not evolve the ability to detect sound waves or compression waves in water? You know, that happened to animals many times. Or the ability to detect chemicals in your environment like taste and smell, right? More, more, we've got more determinism going on here, or right? more convergence evolution. And there's, there's limitations, right? You can, some animals can see into the near infrared or the near ultraviolet, but you're still limited in what you can see because you go too far into the infrared, well, it just doesn't have enough energy to affect a change in the shape of a protein. You go too far into the ultraviolet and it has too much energy, and damages your protein. So you see, we there's some there's some constraints there. Okay, so that would be the the ratcheting up in complexity there. And if you have a complex ecosystem, you probably have lots of photosynthesis taking place, pumping lots of oxygen into the atmosphere, and you probably have sunlight, you know, so that you have you know lots of energy flowing through your open system. Okay, we got animal-like organisms. What about getting to the intelligent ones, the ones capable of, of an advanced civilization? Once again, I think, my hypothesis, they're going to look something like us. I know. I, I've been accused of lacking an imagination before, and I probably at some point do. And that's what I love about reading science fiction, where people come up with these aliens that are really wild, like beings of energy and 
uh, or, or an octopus that's uh, intelligent. Hey, that's a great idea, right? That's Arthur C. Clarke, Rama Revealed, where, you know, they, they communicated by flashing color across their forehead and they had tentacles kind of like an octopus. And of course, on our planet, octopus are really intelligent. But when it comes to like an intelligent species capable of advanced civilizations, I'm going to make some more bold prediction. They're going to have a head. They're probably going to see, they're probably going to interpret sound waves, and they're probably going to detect some type of olfaction in their environment. I'm also going to speculate that they're probably endothermic. You've probably not heard of endothermy. Endo means within, thermy means heat. Endothermic animals maintain a, a relatively constant body temperature above whatever the environment is. And the reason why they do that is because it keeps all the chemical reactions of that body, of, their, of the organism, going fast. So mammals, you know, it doesn't matter if it's zero degrees outside or 100 degrees outside, we stay about 100 degrees, 98 to 100. And like I said, that, that kind of maximizes our metabolism and it also maximizes our nervous system as well. The nervous system of animals operates much more quickly at warmer temperatures. So if you're this intelligent species, well, your nervous system has to operate fast. I mean, I could, yeah, sure, you could, you could go to a scenario where it might be operating very slow. And that, that'd be an interesting, you know, story to explore. You discover aliens living in like um, Europa, you, you crack the ice and they're like, whoa, what are these things here? You know, we, and we're going, wow, they move so slowly compared to us. And they're like, they're so fast, I can't comprehend what they're doing. They're there and then they're there. So yeah, you could imagine like an intelligent species operating at like 32 degrees Fahrenheit. They would probably think much more slowly than us. So I would suspect that they would probably be endothermic and on the surface of the planet, not in the water. I know, another bold prediction, but here's why. Well, we have electronics, steel, circuitry, all of these advancements in our civilization, internal combustion engines. That would be almost impossible to event in water. And in fact, oh my gosh, all of our technology does not really like a lot of water, right? I mean, could you imagine designing a computer or inventing computers in water? Maybe they don't need computers. Who knows? I'm, I'm just, you know, anthropomorphizing here big time because, well, that's the only example I have is what we have. So alien life, probably going to look something like us. Our body plan works. It's very conducive. You'll, to move, you'll need like levers or tentacles. You know, we freed our hands up to manipulate our environment. And the other thing that I would suspect about aliens also like us is they would be some form of social organism. And the reason why you have social organisms work for humans is because we communicate with each other. We can communicate many different ways, but specifically through sound. So just you listening to me modulating sound waves, I can convey almost an infinite amount of information of which your brain can receive and interpret and respond to that. So I would suspect very strongly that Aliens would have a form of communication, whether it's sound, flashing colors across their forehead or their bodies, and the ability to manipulate their environment. So do they have to look as close to us as like Spock? 
you know, I, I, from a Vulcan, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we found aliens that look very similar to us. Um, now, would we be able to communicate with them? Don't know. So, yeah, this this idea of what aliens would look like. Yeah, you might be accusing me of having this lack of an imagination. But the reason why I think that it would work is because of this idea. I'm going to go back to it called convergent evolution. That to be an intelligent society, to have intelligence, you have to solve these various problems. Now, as I was teaching astrobiology, one of my students pointed out that like the evolution of intelligence on this planet in terms of humans had some you know, remarkable uh, coincidences that were very rare to solve these problems, which could mean that you know, intelligent life in the universe might be exceedingly rare. And the question is, uh, and I've explored this in Are We Alone in the Universe? You know, life, life is probably abundant, but intelligent life might be rare. But, you know, a galaxy with a trillion stars, you know, billions of Earths and, you know, trillion galaxies gives you, you know, a, a trillion billion Earths. You, you, you might find intelligent life somewhere on there. I don't know if we're the one in trillion billion. Billion trillion? Trillion billion. Yeah. Trillion galaxies, billion Earths. Yeah. It's hard to say, right? It really is. Well... At any rate, because I'm a biological determinist and I feel that this convergent evolution is going to be important, that alien life might look very similar to life on Earth. Now, other people have said, like Stephen Jay Gould, have postulated that, you know, if you were to go back 600 million years ago and run the experiment of evolution again, that life might look very different than it does today. And he might be right, which would mean that I'm going to I'm going to stick to my guns here at the molecular level. But he might be right that evolution might come up with very different answers over the course of 600 million years and humans would have never have evolved. And I tend to like agree with the fact that if you run the experiment over again, it would be unlikely that humans would have evolved. But I do think that animals would have evolved to be things like bilateral symmetry. I do think that, you know, on land, you're going to get something like an insect or an arthropod, or you're going to get a vertebrate, you know, that eventually endothermy, you know, this idea of, I don't like the word warm blooded because there's, there's reptiles at like hundred degrees Fahrenheit, but endothermy would evolve that you would have a continually ratcheting up of complexity on our planet. So yeah, these are hypotheses. I know it's speculation upon speculation and uh, I really, really can't wait to see if we actually discover life in our solar system because it will allow us to test the hypotheses of basically would life look very similar to us at the molecular cellular level? And I suspect yes. And if we go into Europa and we find something very different, that would be so exciting because then we would get to see another independent evolution of life in our solar system. And then, of course, you know, I've, I've talked about Titan in previous podcasts, but finding life on the surface of Titan, living in liquid hydrocarbons would just be astounding. And there are people working on trying to figure out what life might look like living in liquid hydrocarbons where your, your solvent, your medium is hydrophobic instead of hydrophilic like water. 
you can imagine that the, the all the chemistry be very reversed in terms of you know our cells everything dissolves in water and their their chemistry would dissolve in a hydrocarbon so people are actually working on this well you know in terms of intelligent life we may never get a chance to to uh, test that hypothesis but it's still it's still potentially testable and who knows i mean aliens could land on our planet in the next year and we would be like oh wow you hello vulcans or they might be so different we're like whoa what what in the world is that but I, I hope that NASA continues to keep funding these probes to go to these planets and check out their moons and search for life because it allows us to test our hypotheses. And, uh, you know, are we right or are we wrong? Are we going to support them or totally refute it? Or we learn a whole new way that life can exist? Either way, very exciting. And it will also, if we find life, not only can it test those hypotheses, but then we can make better predictions about whether or not life is super rare in the universe or abundant. All right. Well, this was fun, you know, talking about life and, and uh, what it might look like. Speculation on top of speculation. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll find out. So uh, stay tuned for the next time. Uh, I'll have another podcast out next week. I'm going to get back to a regular schedule here. I took a little hiatus as I was working on my office, but I'm almost done with it. And that will be nice. So until next time, this is Tom Sycast.